So I went to uh, college in the fall of 2004. And a couple of days into college, we were coming, we were walking back from dinner. So this would have been near the end of August. And there was a group of athletes that were sitting outside of the dorm and they were talking about basketball. Now, if you know much about me, I love basketball, Stephen, kindred spirits. Uh, this was in 2004 and the Lakers had just lost the NBA Finals, so I was in a lot of pain. <laughs> but uh, I heard this group of athletes talking about basketball and you know, when you first go to college, you just you make friends with everybody, especially if somebody's talking about something you know. So my friends that I had gone to dinner with kept walking and I stopped with this group of athletes and just started talking about basketball. And I didn't know him at the time. I, we became friends, but uh, we started arguing about, you know, the Spurs were good at the time. The Lakers had just fallen apart. Uh, the Mavericks and uh, were good. So, like, everybody, you know, everybody in Texas was real interested in basketball at the time. And uh, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 minutes into this conversation, our, our very lively sports debate um, a police officer rolls up and gets out of his car real quick and says, is everything okay? I'm like, yeah, everything's fine. He said, well, we got a, we got a couple calls, so I, I'm just, I'm making sure that everything is okay. And we're, and I mean, it was really confusing at first because, uh, the athletes had just got done with football practice. I mean, they were sitting on the bench. They were just tired. They weren't, they weren't doing much. I was the only one standing and uh, I said, no, I think we're okay. And the police officer said, well, can you come over here for a second? And so I said, yeah. So I walked over. He goes, is, is everything okay? It's like, yeah, we're arguing about Kobe and Tim Duncan. It's okay. And it dawned on me pretty uh, quickly that I was the only white person there. And there was a handful of uh, African-American guys around. And the police officer said that he got a couple of calls of people that were concerned for me. So I, I, I still to this day don't know who called or exactly why they called. Um, there was probably an assumption that this white person among these African-American guys, something must have been going on. And so the police officer came over. Um, I have a friend who pastors a church in uh, Nacogdoches, and he was recently telling me a couple weeks ago that they have, um, his church is primarily Anglo, and, uh, but they have a conversation partner church that's primarily African American. So periodically they do stuff together, they'll have a meal together or some sort of joint mission project or maybe even worship together, but at one of their recent joint meals, they got together and you would have anywhere from three to four uh, people from the primarily Anglo church and then three to four of the African-American church. They would sit at the table together and they would have common conversations they would talk about. So one of the things they did was the, the question that my friend threw out to them is he said, uh, I want you to total up how many times since you've moved here you've been pulled over by the police? 
Now, these churches are both primarily professional churches. They are similar in economic status. They're similar in uh, housing. They're similar in education. Most of the people at both of these churches, they're teachers, they're professors, they're professionals in the area. And at each table, what they would do is they would then give their number. How, how many? And the white people at the table would total up, you know, six times, eight times, maybe even ten times between all of them. And then the African-American people at the table would say, I've been pulled over 40 times since I've moved here. Just an individual. So their numbers were 150, 200 times. Far, far more significant than their counterparts in the community. Well, last week after Aurelia's sermon, I was uh, inspired, I think even in the life of the church, I used the term spirit. There was, there was a, uh, something in the room. And uh, I had, I've been preparing, I mean, I've had this summer because of the uh, working on a dissertation to just sort of think about, you know, what am I going to preach whenever I finally get back in the pulpit? And so I'd been working on uh, a sermon for quite some time, but there was just no way. There was no way after uh, listening to Aurelia last week that, that I could preach that sermon um, I can't be silent, and this sermon bubbled up in me uh, as I was trying to go to sleep some Sunday night, and I thought I can't go to sleep, so I got my phone out and started Googling and reading, and uh, you know, it, it's really easy for me to ignore issues of race. It's just easy. I mean, I don't have to think about them very often, um, but I would say the Spirit stirred me. Uh, last week, we had an incredible personal sermon from a perspective of a person of color, and uh, Aurelia talked about um, her own story, and I think she did a marvelous job, and if you haven't listened to that, I hope you listened to last week. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about something different. I'm going to talk about some practical institutional and systemic racism matters, and the question is, what can I do as a person with privilege, uh, especially uh, as an Anglo male. So I'm going to use some current research and show some practical implication uh, for different sectors in society. But before I jump into that, what's the next slide? There we go. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time convincing you from Scripture uh, based on the people we have today. Um, I. Racism is not from the heart of God. Um, in Genesis 1, everything God made was good. You can see it over and over again. It was good, it's good, it's good. Then when uh, the humans came, they were very good. So uh, that would include all people. And believe it or not, I, whenever the first people came about, I don't think that they were just white American males. I know that might be a shocker, but um, all people are good. Uh, Jesus gives his commandment to love God with our hearts, minds, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And then the question is, well, who is our neighbor? And there's this parable of the Good Samaritan, where the idea is that everyone is our neighbor, especially those people who look different and act different and think different and might be from different places. In Galatians 3, which is the scripture that Lyle read earlier, 
we have this gospel of inclusion. Who is good news for? Is it just for the free? Is it just for the Jew? Is it just for males? No, it's in Christ there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. And you can add anything else in there you want. Married or divorced or single or dog lovers or cat lovers or tall or short or children or senior adults or gay or straight, whoever. We're all one in Christ Jesus. There's also a uh, priority in uh, the Bible has for economic inequality. If you were to total up all of the scriptures that talk about some sort of money uh, in all the Bible you, er, and justice issues, you would have almost 3,000 verses, which really makes you wonder, why don't we talk about that a lot more? Instead, you know, the uh, hot thing in a lot of churches is to um, just talk about five or six verses on sexuality and just harp on those over and over and over again. But we miss these 3,000 verses related to justice and caring for the poor. Uh, Jesus had a priority where he uh, talked a lot about and to people who are disenfranchised, people who are marginalized. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 says that our, for our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers of the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So there's this fight against systems. It's not just fighting interpersonally with one another, but there, there are larger things going on here. All right, I got to say a couple of qualifications before I start talking about some of these things. Now, um, this can be the dumbest sermon for somebody trying not to get fired, but uh, based on our attendance this morning, I don't even think we have a quorum, so at least I don't have to worry about it <laughs> this week. Um, I don't know if y'all saw a couple of weeks ago, there was a descendant of Robert E. Lee, who uh, is a minister in a UCC church, and he spoke out against white supremacy during, was it the MTV Music Awards or the VMAs? MTV? They're, that's the same thing? See, I just learned something in the middle of the sermon. I don't know, I just heard about it afterwards. Uh, anyway, uh, when he spoke out about, against it, and it was like, in my opinion, not that controversial of a statement, uh, his church didn't like the attention that he got, and uh, he was... Um, forced to resign. Uh, so, but honestly, I think that, you know, if I'm forced to resign over this sermon, it's a pretty good way to go out. So, um, you know, this stuff is really easy to dismiss, but as Christians, we can't. Uh, we're called to care for the outsider uh, those without power, the disenfranchised, the hungry, the poor, those without clothes, those who uh, don't have a voice in society. Now, I need to say a word about larger stats. So I'm going to talk about some very broad stats. But in anytime you're looking at big stats, there's always outliers. Things are always contextuals. In large system, there's always individual cases. These things are very complicated. There's lots of factors. So I'm not trying to act like there's a really simple answer out there. Um, people can often feel helpless, like there's nothing they can do. Um, they might even feel attacked, but there's, there's no reason for you to, to feel attacked this morning. This is about awareness. Um, you know, 
somebody might come back and say, well, because often economics and status and class are, are very tied in with uh, race and these issues. Somebody say, well, I know this, uh, I have this really rich black friend, or, well, I grew up poor and white, and uh, we're not trying to generalize every single person, okay? Uh, you can also explain away a stat here or there, but if you really take a step back, and in a second here, when you take a step back from 10,000 feet, you'll see that something isn't right. Even if you disagree with some of my conclusions, we can say there's no way that this is ideal. <clears throat> Another thing to say is you did not create these systems. The, many of these systems have been going on for generations or hundreds of years, uh, even as long as people have been alive. Uh, you didn't sign an opt-in waiver voluntarily. Um, I think that most people are really good. I mean, really good. But there are some bad pastors, teachers, uh, cops, doctors, whoever, especially in, uh, when the system is bad and it enables them to do bad things. Uh, no one, again, no one's trying to make you feel guilty or sorry uh, for something that you've been given or earned. Again, it's just about awareness and then what we can do with it. So I'm not here sitting this morning screaming and telling you that uh, you're racist or telling you that how you should feel as a victim or anything like that. I'm, I'm not trying to scream at you this morning, and that's how these conversations can often take place. Uh, this is a place of challenge and not judgment, and I am have a log in my own eye, and we'll even get to religious systems here in a second. So uh, I can talk about education or housing or healthcare or cities or whatever, but, but religion definitely plays a part. Um... I didn't always see this, and I'm still waking up to it. And my purpose is not to point a finger at any uh, one person this morning. I'm part of the system, too. Um, due to the percentage of Anglo people who come here from week to week, it's pretty obvious that I don't have all these systems figured out. Um, this isn't meant to silence your ideas, continue to bring questions and think about things. Um, but uh, I just, we, we just can't ignore it. Um, systems can become the norm, even if you don't build a system, but we're all players in the system. Another thing to say, this is not partisan. Some people, times instantly people jump to political parties and those sorts of things. I'm trying to come from a Christian perspective, and uh, I really don't care what a political party says, or if you, your title's liberal or conservative or whatever, I'm more concerned with the way of Jesus um, there's also can be an attitude, well, it's not my problem. Well, that attitude can be fine for a secular philosophy, but that's just not a Christian attitude. Um, some of these things are more blatant, some are more hidden, but uh, culture, race, language, economics, all of these things intersect together. So enough of the qualifications Let's just jump in. Okay, so what in the world are we talking about when we talked about systemic racism? Here's the definition that I've come up with. Systemic racism is racism that is built into systems, institutions, and various levels of society. So let's explore some of these things. First, criminal justice. 
Jim, Jim Crow laws are over, right? I mean, that's, I, I would hear that, oh, Jim Crow, or oh, slavery's over. You hear, you hear people say stuff like that. Well, African Americans make up 13% of the population, but 40% of prisons. African Americans are more likely to be arrested and convicted and sent to jail for the same crime committed by white people. And in states where a felony means you can't vote, that means black men are unable to vote at a wildly disproportionate rate than whites. Just not allowed to vote. The prison industrial complex keeps people of color in prisons for drugs and issues related to mental illness, often for economic and political interest for both the private and public. Housing. African Americans are shown 18% fewer homes and 4% fewer rental units than whites. Redlining is, uh, means denying services to people of certain areas based on ethnic makeup in those areas. That often can happen at uh, city planning levels. City planning can give better roads to areas with more wealth, which often, which is not always of course, can correlate to priority with people of certain ethnicities. Education. African American students are three times more likely to be suspended than white students for the same infractions. Black students make up 16% of students in the United States, but 27% of those referred to law enforcement. Black children in the justice system are 18 times more likely than white students to be sentenced as adults. You might have heard something called white flight. Uh, when this desegregation of schools happened, whites started moving away. <clears throat> they started their own private schools. They started districting schools in a way that would, they, that would send uh, ethnicities of certain areas to certain schools. There was no busing within school districts. You were told which school you were allowed to go to. Oh, this isn't just in the 1960s and 70s. This is now. Uh, I was recently talking to a local superintendent, and I asked him, uh, where does he see systemic racism? Very practically, where do you see it? He said that charter schools will start up, of course, with public dollars, and they will not offer busing options. What happens if you don't offer busing options? The only types of students who can come to your school are people who can who have parents who drop them off, which often means that they don't have multiple jobs. It, again, economics, class, racism, uh, all these things tie together. Voucher systems take dollars away from the larger tax system and then more economically homogeneous children go start their own private schools. Uh, I was recently talking to somebody in Georgetown who said when they moved here, somebody in his uh, neighborhood said, you might want to uh, find a private school to put your kids in because of the types of kids that are at that school. Standardized tests can even favor students with testing comprehension language. Testing scores can be used to punish and shame students of ethnicities new to the United States, often with language barriers. Wealth. White families hold 90% of all wealth in the United States. African Americans hold about 2.6%. Latina families hold... Uh, is it? I think it's also, I don't have the stat right here, but it's also somewhere similar to 2%. Um, the average single white woman holds more wealth than the average single woman of all ethnicities combined. 
Our tax system favors those whose forebears and ancestors had. When your ancestors, on the other hand, might have been slaves or unjustly paid workers, wealth isn't in your favor. Whites are more likely to hoard wealth than in comparison to people of color. Employment. African Americans are two times as likely to be unemployed. Unemployment rate is two times that of whites in the last 60 years. Uh, there's been studies done that um, people who are hiring um, will often call back people whose names sound white. There was an experiment I recently heard about, uh, I think it was on the Liturgist podcast, where this guy changed his name to sound white. He, he put in two different uh, applications. And on one, he would have his uh, given name, which was ethnic sounding, and the other one was Anglo sounding. And he would get, the, again, same resume, just a different name. And he would get callbacks from the one who sounded white. Um, people with white sounding names often have better ratings online than non-white people, whether that be Uber or Airbnb, those sorts of things. But I don't know if you've ever heard your uncle at Thanksgiving dinner, it's just because those people don't work as hard. Now, can we stop here for just a second? I have a couple more and say, um, this is what white privilege looks like. If you ever have somebody who says white privilege doesn't exist, here it is. Elections. Gerrymandering uh, is a big problem. As you can see here, uh, let's say for a second, in a district, you had 60% was blue, 40% was red. Of course, if you just went straight across and it, all things were even, you know, blue's going to win all the seats. So instead what they do is they come up with really creative shapes so that you can end up having uh, states and I'm not picking on just Republicans or Democrats or whatever, but you can do these often along racial lines. And when you do these along racial lines, yeah, it's sort of hard to see right now because of the, the color of the, the thing, but the, the red's on the left, the blue's on the right. But um, people who control these maps go in and they look and they say, okay, well, we think that African-Americans are going to vote this way or whites are going to vote this way or Latinos are going to vote this way. And you can divide people up by streets and zip codes, and um, it's a really easy way to, uh, to rig elections. Surveillance. African-American drivers are 30 times more likely to be pulled, or 30% more likely to be pulled over by police. Young African-American men are more likely to be harassed by police. And recently, Muslims have had an incredible amount of increased surveillance. I wasn't able to find stats, um, but that's increased significantly uh, over the last few years. Healthcare. A recent study showed two-thirds of doctors have racial bias against African-American patients. Doctors who are persons of color are often less likely to receive government grants for research funding as compared to white doctors. So now let's talk about religion. You, uh, may have seen, or at least heard part of this quote before, Martin Luther King said, Unfortunately, most of the major denominations still practice segregation in local churches, hospitals, schools, and church institutions. It's appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, the same hour when many are standing to sing, In Christ there is no east or west. 
Systems for worship can be racist, even if we don't mean them to be. We want our own preferences, our own culture, and then we end up pushing others out. I even heard a critique recently of the lectionary, what hurt, hurt me personally, because I love the lectionary, said the lectionary can be problematic because uh, people of privilege don't have to talk about racism in the church unless it comes up in the readings, because you can always just say, well, we'll talk about that whenever it comes around in the church calendar. Um, just to be clear, uh, Christianity's had its problems with race. There were slave masters who used the Bible to justify slavery. Missionaries imperialistically squashing culture as they go into places. We can, most of us can probably agree that the Crusades of old were wrong, but what about a current nation of three-fourths Christian people droning people of color on the other side of the world now? So, I got sent this quote by uh, three people this week in the church, so I guess I sort of took the hint. Let me read it for a second. It's uh, from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1963 letter from a Birmingham jail. I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is absent of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with the methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. We're talking about race, but I think that can, uh, can go to a lot of other topics and issues too. Just wait, just don't, let's not say anything about that. What can we do? We got to do something, start somewhere. Now, we probably can't change the entire system overnight, although if any of you have some ideas, I'd much like to talk about them, but each one of us can change from within. So the first thing to do is to be aware. You might have heard of the term microaggressions. Microaggressions are indirect, subtle, maybe even unintentional things people say that are derogatory about marginalized groups, often racial groups. How good are the schools in that area? Is that school bad? Oh, the school who has been districted specifically by the city to have ethnic minorities, whose parents work two jobs each, who have no wealth, who lack uh, access to appropriate health care, who have different experience with language on the standardized tests, whose school lacks the help it needs from the city, state, and federal government. Oh, that, that school that you're talking about. There's dog whistle politics. This is coded language uh, that usually means something to a targeted group. You'll, you'll see politicians that say that. Ah, this is what true America looks like. Cultural appropriation or misappropriation. It's misappropriating elements of culture, especially without permission. So uh, for those of you who are aware of the NFL, there is a team called the Redskins, 
And every week when they have a home game, they have 70 or 80,000 fans who dress up like Native Americans. I, I mean, it's like, how is this happening? Can be sensitive. For example, when uh, there's a lot of stuff going on with Confederate statues right now. And it's amazing how many people online who happen to just continually be white males, it's just a statue. A statue can't hurt you. Well, to some people, it's more than that. Often these Confederate statues represent all of these things coming together. It's just a statue. No, it's not. Make a friend. Or if you have a friend, ask, what has your experience been like as a person of color in America? How has it been like in your lifetime? Different places you live, has it evolved? Just ask them. Don't look for an answer. Just ask them how it's been. Prayerfully engage in the political process. Now, there was a time in my life where I was just almost thought, I'm just tired of voting because I really don't feel like getting involved in any of this. And by a time in my life, I meant November 2016. But uh, I realized that it was my privilege that was even giving me this thought, like, I don't really have to. I mean, at the end of the day, how much is this really going to affect me one way or the other? Well, I have to think about other people. Now, there are no candidates, policies, platforms, or parties that are perfect, but we have to engage. Um, if, you're gonna be, if we're going to be the salt and light in the world, we have to be in the world and involved in the world. Uh, again, out of your own conviction, I'm not telling you exactly how to vote here or anything like that, because these things can be very complicated, but be engaged. And then, um, what are your various platforms? Conversations, families, your HOA, your school board, talking to the city council, social networking, voting. What are your platforms? We all have probably more influence than we even realize. Now, if you have trouble, sometimes the word privilege can be so buzzy that if you bring it up in a conversation, people immediately shut down. So here's a trick that, uh, that I've started using uh, that someone told me, is you can start with the word advantage. Talk about advantages that you have, or maybe even advantages you don't have. Some are earned, some aren't. And then you can just stick to practical facts. That's a good thing anytime you're having these conversations. Stick to facts. So I didn't, most of my privilege wasn't earned, but I was given it. Some have it, some don't. And so I have a responsibility to use it. It's sort of like money. I mean, it's what you do with it that matters. So... What now? This is the uh, question that I struggled with all week. I, how do I end this sermon? I mean, just tell everybody to sit in silence and th think about the systemic racism <laughs> that's happened from the beginning of time. I mean, I, I know I've given you so much to think about, but I do just want to give you time to think. To pray, to meditate, to con contemplate. Maybe you need to confess, to repent. You need to be committed to something. Now, guilt and shame are not necessary. That's not what I'm asking this morning. You are free and grace to move forward this morning, but action moving forward is the greatest thing you can do. It may feel overwhelming, but what is one thing that you heard about today that you can commit to tomorrow? A lifetime of growth takes a lifetime. In a moment, Aurelia and I uh, are going to be standing in the back for prayer. That's something that uh, we started last week that we're going to start doing moving forward. If you 
uh, want a, a brief word of prayer, a blessing, if there's something that, that you need to get off your chest, a confession, whatever. We're going to be available um, to meet with anyone who needs it. So I would like to end this sermon with this benediction. May we, my sisters and brothers, break our silence in inaction and join each other in unity in Christ. This matters. You matter. Amen.